Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Land Party Lawyers podcast. My name is Nick Brown, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Steve Blickensderfer. To our regular listeners, welcome back. Thank you for listening. To our new listeners, this is a podcast where we tackle issues at the intersection of video games, law, and business through debate, discussion, and interviews. We try to focus on legal issues in particular, and we offer takeaways in our thoughts, but please always remember nothing we say here is legal advice. Today, we have a great topic for you and a great show. Uh, We're going to be talking about a big deal in the industry, and that's a shift and rise of mobile gaming. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the industry trends. We're going to talk about why they're occurring. We're going to talk a little bit about some legal issues and some practical issues that are arising in the space. And then we're going to get to the main event, which will be a great interview we have for you today with Brian Grayson, the founder and CEO of Lionheart Games, a uh, major mobile development studio in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. So why don't you go ahead and get us started, Steve? Uh, Let us know what's going on. Why are we talking about mobile games? Thanks, Nick. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, uh, mobile apps and mobile games are huge. And mobile games in particular have been... um, kind of uh, shaking the industry up a little bit. And, and what do I mean by that? We're, we're seeing a trend where some traditional PC game companies, console game companies have actually started to dedicate uh, and s- create specific studios just around the mobile game ecosystem because it is a very unique ecosystem with its own challenges, which we're going to really cover in today's episode, Nick. So, um, You know, just to kind of give you an example, a recent example, Activision Blizzard's recent new title, Call of Duty, uh, they've actually sold more units and had more downloads on their COD mobile version. Last I saw, yeah, 150 million. Million downloads, uh, making it just the largest uh, Call of Duty activation that they've had for the platform so which is saying something especially given that call of duty is pretty much known as one of the major gaming brands in existence right that's right so uh it makes it like kind of begs the the question why why is mobile games so you know hot right now and and really the the primary reason is the low cost entry the low barrier to entry all you need is a phone a smartphone in order to play That's right. And uh, so uh, we like to introduce these issues with little vignettes, and I have one for you today. Uh, Someone who may have been watching BlizzCon in November 19 uh, may remember the why do you not have phones or don't you all have phones fiasco. Um, A little background. Blizzard is a company that has been making PC games primarily for many, many years, and they're known as an icon in the industry. And for a long time, uh, they, they just had unparalleled respect in that regard. Well, in November 2018, they announced that the next entry in their immensely popular Diablo series, which had always been PC-based, was going to be a mobile-only game called Diablo Immortal. Uh, developer Wyatt Chang was uh, on the stage answering fan questions live, and one of the questions was essentially, well, won't this ever come out on PC? You guys are a PC company, right? And he said, no, it won't. They're planning on mobile only for this game. And the crowd booed him uh, immensely. And he infamously responded, do you guys not have phones? Uh, Which prompted great internet ridicule. Now, not because there's anything wrong with mobile games. In fact, they're incredibly popular. But because this was a PC audience and everyone was expecting their marquee announcement to be for the platform that they traditionally developed for. But... uh, Internet ridicule aside, Chang had a a point, a really good one, which is that everybody has smartphones now. Uh, Smartphone users, last we saw, according to estimates, 
surpassed 3.2 billion globally in 2019, which is no small number. Uh, we're seeing uh, an expected 8.3% year-on-year growth in smartphones. So that number is actually going to be continuing to increase. And the estimates are that it'll be near 4 billion globally by 2022. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a number that's going to be hard to ignore. Yeah, those are some big numbers. But in addition to the low barrier of entry and the popularity of smartphones, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. Mobile gaming is kind of a natural platform because it allows for functionalities and mechanics that are just unavailable for what we see as traditional gaming. So the number one, right, which is just the unparalleled convenience. You can play on the go anywhere, whether you're in the car, whether you're at the doctor's office, whether you're, you know, waiting at the DMV. You can whip it out and start playing a game uh, with, with no real, um, you know, damage to the quality of your experience. And it's also got tech benefits over traditional gaming. Uh, first of all, your cell phone's pretty much always connected to data, so you don't need a separate internet connection or a separate internet account. Uh, they also generally have geolocation services built in, uh, which allow for, you know, gaming experiences that don't really exist anywhere else. You, uh, Pokemon Go is one that we've talked about on this podcast before, and that's the sort of thing that you just can't do on a traditional console because there's no, no geolocation aspect to it. Uh, most phones also have gyroscopes, which allow for cool things like tilting your phone to turn or to navigate your character, which no doesn't exist um, elsewhere without that specialized equipment. And then they also integrate... That does exist on the Switch uh, when, you're, when you're playing Zelda or something and you're shooting an arrow. Uh, so that does... It, but I, I would like to think, I, you know, this is me speculating a little bit, but that was influenced by mobile games. So now we're, we're seeing mobile games influence, you know, consoles traditionally. One of the main selling points of Switch is that it is mobile itself. Right. Right. And so I, you know, I would say that goes together perfectly, Steve. There you go. Uh, and last, it also allows for integration with other apps from your non-gaming life, right? If it's on your phone, uh, fitness apps will track your steps or distance so you can be playing the game even when you've got the game closed. And it's got a natural application and fit with all your contacts and your social media and whatnot. So it helps with connectivity. Right. So there's a lot of tech reasons in addition to just the popularity of smartphones. Well, you take those numbers, the popularity of smartphones, you put it together with an ecosystem uh that's in in the business of making money and mobile mobile apps in general are big business okay we're, we're talking just to kind of give a little bit of context 188 189 billion dollars uh in the u.s um alone in 2020 is is expected in terms of revenues for mobile apps so mobile games in particular constitutes the largest segment of the global games market uh 68.5 billion in 2019 which is a year-over-year -year growth of 26.7 percent uh take a specific example Tencent's that is astounding 26 percent year-on-year growth yeah I, I take a quarter you know 25 percent year-over-year growth any day uh in a, in a particular industry just to give you a sample an I indication like I of grew how it's 25 percent last year but not in dollars yeah in other ways to get back uh, into the gym yeah just to give you some examples I mean, these are games that i frankly had never heard of before but 10 cents honor of kings alone generated 1.5 billion dollars in 2019 one and game. One game, right. And, and, and compare this to Nintendo's entire mobile games portfolio, uh, reportedly grossing $1 billion in 2019. Uh, and could you That's guess, amazing. Could you guess the most lucrative of the bunch of those games? It's not Mario Kart. I'll give you that hint. It's actually Fire Emblem Heroes. Haven't played it. 
Never heard of it before. I've heard a lot of good things about it, but I haven't played it either. But uh, it looks like we may be in the minority. Well, this is an indication that the games really aren't as popular here in the U.S. as they are elsewhere. Uh, In Japan and China, for example, those are increasingly in Japan for you know, it's pretty well known for being a mobile game country. Uh, but China is also growing in, in that respect. China alone has 623 million mobile gamers. That's a large audience of gamers. Uh, in Japan, four of the five, four out of the top five highest grossing games are mobile titles. Uh, and together, they account for 20% of Japan's uh, iOS revenue uh, last year. So you're looking wow. to four to, games, twenty percent. Yeah, yeah. So you, you look to, if you're looking for the growth in this industry and where it's popular, it's in these and it's in the Asian markets, it's in emerging countries, India, the Middle East, Latin America, uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, to give another example, PUBG Mobile is massive in India and and Southeast Asia, and we're seeing really competitive esports scenes uh, surrounding PUBG Mobile in those markets. And one of the top video games uh, in esports altogether last year was the Arena of Valor, a mobile MOBA. Um, so I don't know if you've ever played that game, Nick. I haven't. I, I have not. Uh, my MOBA time is spent weeping over Heroes of the Storm, as we all know. But yeah. nonetheless, um, you know, there's also we've seen a big increase in like streaming and subscription models uh, because they kind of. You know, it dovetails with mobile gaming and makes it more attractive. Everyone's heard about Stadia, Project X Cloud, and Nvidia's offering, uh, and even the Apple Arcade. So, every all these big companies that are in gaming are actually making their own shift specifically to mobile now. And the issue really is latency, right? That is so far kept, uh, you know, mobile type gaming and, and streaming services from dominating the scene even despite their you know great uh, comparative convenience but as tech improves you know we're going to see that barrier of latency erode over time and in fact that brings us naturally to the issue of 5G right. which is revolutionary technology that um, is always you know I always hear it's coming next year uh, despite what year it is but it's eventually when it comes going to result in seamless cloud gaming on mobile because it's supposed to be able to deliver through your cell type uh, data transfer the same type of connection that you would get on high speed internet that you're used to paying uh, additionally for. Yeah, no, 5G is supposed to, it promises to just revolu- revolutionize the marketplace. It's one of those uh, industry or just kind of just, it does, it's not in one particular area, right? It obviously comes out of telecom, but it's going to impact businesses of all shapes and sizes. And it's definitely going to impact the mobile game market. Right. Now, one of the biggest issues that we've seen uh, regarding mobile gaming is uh, with respect to inter- intellectual property in the mobile gaming market. Uh, because, you know, the internet and mobile gaming is more global in nature, it's important for companies to manage their IP in other emerging markets. You don't just actually worry about your home base. And it requires building a global compliance program, and, and so this is pretty much why. We've seen lots of examples of companies in one country using the assets, right, of a developer from another country and ultimately evading accountability due to jurisdictional or practical differences or problems in, in trying to stop and, uh, stop and collect on that. 
Forbes estimated that um, there's approximately three to four billion dollars lost annually every year wow, by that, developers. That's a lot of from money. pirated apps. Right. That's a lot of money left on the table. Right. Which which equates or or breaks down into an estimated 14 billion pirated apps that are installed globally every single year. Right. And that number, if the trends we've seen continue, that number is going to increase. And the problem usually comes down to detection and enforcement, right? Pirates will download an app from a legitimate source, whether Google Store or some other store, uh, and then they will deconstruct it and re-upload it on a global store or on other stores with their own monetization scheme embedded in it. So they kind of take the work of the developers, repurpose it, repackage it, and then slap their own bank account on it, for uh, for lack of a better word. So when people use these, the pirate ends up getting the money, not the original developers who designed the game and created the assets. Uh, and this is really difficult to detect without monitoring all the competing app stores, right? Because somebody can just go and do this on their own. And even once detected, like I mentioned earlier, there are financial or jurisdictional barriers that are going to prevent relief a lot of the time. So this is really an area that companies should watch for because uh, it's popular now and it's going to get only more difficult as time goes on. We actually saw a very famous example of this a couple of years ago um, where Riot saw its you know, only game at the time, League of Legends, pretty much copycatted into a mobile game called Mobile Legends Bang Bang. It was released in Asia and the U.S. Yeah, totally catchy. Uh, well, Riot wasn't too happy to see such striking similarities between its game, League of Legends, and Mobile Legends Bang Bang. So it sued for copyright infringement in the U.S. Uh, in federal court in California. Uh, you know, to bring in the, the legal stuff uh, to this podcast, it was actually, this lawsuit was dismissed under a doctrine called forum nonconvenience, uh, which basically said there's a better jurisdiction where you could sue. And so we're going to actually take this case out of the courts and we're going to, um, you know, trust that you're going to bring it elsewhere. And so think about it, Riot, its parent company is Tencent, a Chinese uh, company, and it's suing a Chinese company in federal court in, in California. So under the circumstances of this particular case, uh, that forced Tencent to have to sue this company in China. And so, you know, le legal pundits were following this, this case, and what ended up happening was a judgment against this company. I think the company's name was, was uh, uh, Moonton. Um, Anyway, it resulted in a judgment. Not quite like, as catchy as Bang Bang. No, I like Bang Bang better. Uh, <laughs> it resulted in a judgment of like $2.9 million. So uh, justice was served in the end, um, but it took, a while. it took a lot of effort, right? Had to go to a different jurisdiction, couldn't bring a lawsuit here. So a lot of different uh, legal considerations to make with respect to protecting assets internationally. Yeah, there's actually a lot to talk about in that regard. And because of that, we've got an upcoming episode of this podcast that's going to tackle that in more detail. So stay tuned. Yeah, so other things to consider with respect to mobile games that's a little different than the other uh, just the traditional PC and console markets is uh, distribution considerations. You have to release it through Google Play or the Apple Store or other, as you mentioned, Nick, local regional um, app distribution centers. And so each one of those, as you can imagine, comes with it comes with its own terms and conditions as to, you know, the games have to be X, Y, and Z, you know, they 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 have to comply by these rules. And if they don't, if they violate them, game goes down and you lose the opportunity to distribute your game on the, on the, you know, the handsets and the devices of the various players in the jurisdiction. Sometimes, even if the rules change after you've submitted your app. 
Right. That's right. The rules aren't necessarily static. Uh, these are we've covered this in past podcasts. Electronic contracts that, uh, according to their terms, change from time to time, and so uh, it's just like shifting sands in a way. And so it's a little different. It's a challenging um, thing that you know companies just need to be aware of and they struggle with, or that they work through. Uh, and so, just switch gears to another aspect of kind of the same thing because of the unique nature in which mobile games are developed and, and, and how they work, uh, they tend to be free to play. That's what, you know, so you can try it and, and see if you like it. And in order to monetize that- To keep that barrier to entry low, really low. Exactly. Right? Uh, you also get uh, microtransaction components to them. And that's how you can have games like Fire Emblem Heroes um, become so such big money generators and to be so popular because it allows other players, uh, many, many players to play the game and enjoy it. Uh, and it kind of, you know, the flip side of that is we're seeing a lot of esports develop in this area as well. And Steve mentioned this earlier, but just to flesh it out a little bit, we were at uh, DreamHack Atlanta in November of last year, which is a, a wonderful international esports tournament. And it's in this giant convention center, and we're walking around from stage to stage where every stage is full of these giant, beautiful rigs that are custom built and loaded with RGB, very high quality, lots of components. And we keep walking by, and eventually we get to this stage where you've got same production quality. Same lighting, same steam, same announcing, but everyone is sitting up on stage holding a phone and playing a game on their phone. It was trippy I to see that. It was fun. It was very surprising. I did a double take. They're yeah. all, <laughs> and then you know, you look at it a little closer. They're playing PUBG, and they're doing things on their phones that I don't know that I could pull off with my full mouse and keyboard setup. Right. So it was very impressive. Um, and expect to see more of that. You know, I was I was surprised to see that, but it, it was very natural there, and, and people were really enjoying it. So expect to see that a lot. Expect to see issues arise on the administrative side because, you know, it's one thing to have a minimum set of specs for a, a computer game and, and just say everyone who plays a game, either you have to play on the same type of machine for the tournament or you have to play at a, a certain level of, uh, of specs. But, you know, that gets a little more difficult with phones, right? Because new phones are out all the time. They come from different makers, and they don't necessarily jive Apple to Apple. And so uh, that'll be interesting to watch the tech and the administrative side of the esports develop as well. All right. And dare I say, we're going to even see, and we're already seeing, streamers uh, play mobile games. since so you're literally watching a streamer uh, play a mobile game on his phone. Pretty cool stuff to watch. But I think... Nick, we've covered uh, enough. Let's actually talk to someone who is in the industry and doing this and, and working through all the stuff that we discussed. Brian Grayson, we're going to uh, shift gears to the interview now. Uh, as, as you mentioned, Nick, the founder and CEO of Lionheart Games, a former VP of Hi-Rez Studios in Atlanta uh, for their legal and business development team, and also a reformed big law lawyer. So he gets us, Nick. I think he gets us uh, and understands the plight of big law. Um, Brian, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Well, uh, Brian, I wanted to start with the first question and just kind of if you could in tell our listeners how you got involved in the video game industry. So I thought I was going to be an FBI agent back in college. <laughs> oh, that would have been cool. Yeah, I, I thought so. Video games weren't even on the radar. Um, you know, growing up, I was like, I'm going to go into law enforcement, you know, and, I, and I'm going to join the FBI. And, you know, interestingly, you can't join the FBI until you're 23. 
and I'm graduating college. I'm obviously not 23. I, I went through in four years and I thought, okay, uh, there's all these tracks into the FBI and, um, and I'm not a scientist. I don't know anything about physics. You know, I'm not going in on that. I'm not, I'm not intelligent enough, but maybe I can do this, this law thing. Um, and I really liked the law class I take in undergrad, they're docket, they're small. And so, uh, I decided I'd go to law school and I did well and Foley and Lardner hired me as a lawyer. Um, and I thought, wow, uh, lawyers, you know, they make a lot of money. <laughs> Some. Those billable rates. Not all of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, so I I started practicing law fully, and I was in um, the insurance group, which dealt with uh, regulatory compliance um, on a 50-state level, as well as um, the insurance side of M&A deals. And um, interestingly, when I got my job at Foley, um, because I was going to school in Wisconsin, you actually don't have to take the bar as long as you practice in Wisconsin. And Foley's headquarters was in Milwaukee. Well, that's convenient. Yeah. So I didn't have to take the bar. I got to opt out <laughs> and I got, you know, six months of my life back. So all these people, you know, Foley's big law, as you guys noted. And and so they hire everybody at the same time. And so I had all this time off. And I thought, well, you know, instead of uh, – doing something useful with my time. I'll just play video games. And uh, <laughs> I know something about that. <laughs> exactly. Twitch was Twitch was on the rise. And at that point, Twitch was still small. So like now everybody goes, they're used to it. They're familiar with streaming platforms. But at the time, uh, the big streamers on Twitch, they had maybe a couple thousand viewers. And um, my friends were telling me you, you could make money just playing video games. People would watch it. I was like, great. Built a PC, started streaming and um, started doing esports commentary uh, casually over a game that was in alpha um, called Smite. And I got a message um, probably three months into that um, from the founder and CEO of that company, Erez Gorin, um, basically responding to a message I had sent around, you know, here's your game, here's why it's gone in a circle in the last six months, and here's how you break the circle and, and grow the game. And he wrote me back and he said, hey, do you want to work here? Uh, you seem pretty knowledgeable. Wow. <laughs> so it all came through criticism. I, I, well, yeah, but I said no. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I'm a lawyer, man. Why would I, why would I go work in a video game company? I'm, I'm in big law. I'm the real deal. You know, I'm not going to go do that. <laughs> oh. um, so so but, but here's what I told him. I said, look, I'll do commentary for your game because it's fun and I enjoy it. And I'll, and I'll help you make the game better. I'll consult with you on design because if you make a better game, it's good for me because I'm playing your game and streaming it. And so we all right. benefit. Win-win. Exactly. And so I'm a lawyer by day. And then on nights and weekends, I'm doing commentary and I'm sending emails about game design and I'm traveling to PAX. I'm going to all these events um, with high res doing these things. And uh, and then and then the moment of doom happens. A partner walks into my office and someone had just left our team and he drops the Affordable Care Act on my desk. That's thousands of pages. Right. It's a giant binder. It fits on your desk. Fits on my, I mean, it makes a thud, right? It's like dropping a brick. I can't believe my desk didn't break. And he looks me in the eyes and he goes, Brian, you're the new Affordable Care Act expert. Oh my God. I said, what? I don't know anything <laughs> about the Affordable Care Act. What do you mean? He said, I know, but you're going to learn. And he walks out because that's how they do in big law, right? They don't give you that much. They throw you in the deep end and then you learn and, and you're better for it. And so I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, I don't know what I'm reading here. What is it? Copa, Cobra? What am I reading? Like, I don't even know what I'm reading. And, and, I, and I, I say to Erez, I said, this is it. 
the dream is done. You know, I've had a lot of fun helping you make the game grow and doing commentary, but this is going to consume my whole life and, and I'm done. And he said, no, you're not. How about I hire you to do business development and legal um, and you, and you could come do that. And I said, yes. Wow. And I, so what you're saying is Obamacare created jobs. <laughs> In some ways, Obamacare uh, directly led to my leaving big law and becoming a game developer. That's, That's fascinating. That's amazing. So you, you worked at, at high res games on PC games, you know, and, and that is something that we, you know, spend a lot of time talking about, but can you tell us a little bit about like the biggest difference between developing PC games and mobile only? Cause I got to imagine they're, they're pretty different. They are. There's some similarities and there's some differences. I think the biggest difference in development is that in mobile, gameplay is not always the selling point for players. I mm. think when you think about PC or console, you're really looking for what has that new compelling gameplay. Right. But in mobile, you might be interested in just repeating gameplay you already know, but having a different progression or a different art theme associated with it. So Gachapon uh, is a common uh, genre of games, right, where folks collect characters and improve those characters and, you know, they'll play to a limit. And then I think they'll look for the next game that's just like that, but maybe does things um, slightly different. So on the development side, I think it's definitely that. On the publishing side, it's your relationship with the audience. Um, PC gamers are very engaged online here in the U.S. and easy to reach. Mobile gamers for the U.S., not for other areas, uh, they're very hard to reach. They're not as engaged. There's not a ton of periodical websites covering the news. There's not all these different forums and locations you can go. You really have to dive into like a subreddit for the specific game or a Discord. Right. And it's much more challenging to have a conversation with your audience. Um, you'll yeah. see mobile game companies and their following is like, maybe a tenth of what the PC game companies have, even though they have much larger player counts. Well, I mean, this market, as you're kind of discussing it, is super, super different in many ways from the traditional PC console market. Can you, and I mean, to give an example, like I, I think the the fact that you have games in one region that you know carry a different name in another. I think I had mentioned before that Arena of Valor and Honor of Kings were different games. They're actually one and the same, right? Um, and I may have misstated that before, but that's just an example of how kind of just nuanced this particular, the mobile game industry is. Is, is that why we're seeing uh, spin-offs or just separate companies being created uh, from traditional uh, game companies as opposed to maybe just a division within a game company? Part of the challenge, I think, when you say, hey, I've got a successful PC console business and I want to be in mobile, is the opportunity cost for entering mobile can be very high, especially if you don't know anything about it, right? So if you're at a large company, um, like let's say Activision Blizzard, it's actually a great example. And you're and even Blizzard, by the way, plays a little bit in mobile with Hearthstone. But if you say, hey, I'm at Activision and Blizzard and I want to you know, be part of this whole world of mobile gaming, well, I can take 100 developers or 200 developers and put them on a mobile project. But if that project fails, 
skills, not only do I miss out on what that project could have done, but that team probably could have produced a pretty successful PC console game that could have generated quite a lot of revenue. And so it just becomes very hard to justify. And what you end up seeing then is either spinoff companies or in the case of Activision Blizzard and you know Call of Duty Mobile you guys were talking about earlier, that's developed by a partner in China, right? And it's the IP and it's the publishing label, but that game came from Tencent Games, right? They were the ones who created Call of Duty Mobile. Um, and then it's just put out here under the Activision label. And I think that, you know, as time continues, what you might see is there are studios that focus on mobile. They understand it very well, and that's what they do, and that's what my studio is. And then you'll have other studios um, like Activision Blizzard where they may say, hey, you know, mobile could just be another platform that we go on for our core experiences, right? Fortnite plays very well on mobile, PC, and console. What other games can do that? And I think there's quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Because they've got their core development, and so they've ported it over to mobile. So they're adding on a mobile component to an already well-oiled machine rather than trying to go out and you know reinvent the wheel on a new uh, a new platform that has you know more different hardware combinations than we've ever seen on on traditional well if, if I also understand it correctly it's also sometimes it could be luck of the draw the game that you developed on a certain platform PC or, or what have you it, it ends up being a great mobile experience but that doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily true for all games, right? So if you had your blockbuster title, it just doesn't do well on mobile, you're missing out. Uh, whereas if you create, a, if you have a studio that's just focused solely on mobile, you can create a great mobile user experience. And so that kind of leads me to my next question. Do you develop games? Because we're seeing this very jurisdictional or regional specific like interests in mobile games. They're hot in certain areas that aren't necessarily in the US. Do you, in, as a result of that, think about developing a game for a particular region or do you just develop a a great mobile experience and you just regardless of wherever it's going to be later in terms of the regions i think you have to consider where your audience is mobile has some challenges around getting players into the game that are a little different than pc console definitely there's some sharing between the two markets but i think On average, in mobile, it can be more costly. And so you really have to consider who's my audience for the game I'm making. And I think you should also consider what you know best. So, you know, for us here developing in Atlanta, we have a pretty good idea of the sensibilities for players, you know, in North America, what they like, what they're used to, what they know. And so we can create a game that uh, is close to those behaviors. So it's not too difficult to pick up and play, but maybe pushes a few things forward in interesting ways. You know, players always say they want something really new and unique and original, but in my experience, they want something that's just a little different than what they already know. And if you go too far out there, it can be very risky really fast. Familiarity with the new spice. Correct. Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. And, you know, the, the you know, an easy example would be like menus, right? Just user experience and UI. What players like in North America is very different than what players in China like. And that's right. also different than what players like in other Asian regions. You can, Without knowing anything about the game, you can almost tell where it was developed sometimes just by the UI, right? 
Right, exactly. And so you can get away with some things in one market that you can't in another. And if you try to go everywhere all at once, I think you're going to need a lot of money and other resources to do it. So when we make a game, we focus on North America, but we also keep in mind, hey, could this game do well everywhere else, right? We want to make sure that the world and the core gameplay and the progression are something that we think everyone could enjoy. But then when we get into some more detailed areas, like how are we building our menus and who are we going to go after first, we definitely pick one location. And for us, it's North America because we're closest to those players. That, that makes a lot of sense. Now, on the topic of user expectations and user preferences, I want to raise a little bit of a sensitive subject, uh, which is I'm sure you've dealt with the stigma that we've seen out on the internet and in the world sometimes that mobile gaming is a lesser form of gaming, a, a casual form as compared to com PC or even consoles. Some have even said the word hot garbage. You know, it's. <laughs> some... I haven't heard anybody say that, but uh, I don't travel in all the same circles as Steven. But, you know, that's probably what was underlying some of the concern with the Diablo Immortal announcement and, and people's reaction to that. So how, has has Lionheart Games encountered that stigma, and how do you deal with it? Do you fight it? Do you embrace it? What what, what are your thoughts on that? And just a quick footnote, I do not subscribe to that view, but that's just <laughs> stuff I heard. So, uh, yeah, it's a good question. We have encountered it. Um, you know, interestingly, more in recruiting than for our players. And I think when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Our mm -hmm. players seek us out because they're interested in a mobile game experience or for our studio, we actually focus on anime games. Um, and so folks who are fans of anime, they also seek us out and tend to be a little bit more forgiving in that uh, respect. But in recruiting, we've definitely encountered it. And I think... You know, it's a very limited audience that feels that way. I think it's a very mm -hmm. um, vocal Western view, to be honest with you. Um, you know, as you guys talked about, mobile gaming is quite large in uh, Eastern regions and uh, everywhere else in the world. So I think it's a very Western view that mobile gaming is lesser gaming. And yeah. the way we approach it is we just we educate people. We try to focus on what our goals are as a studio, again, in the recruiting sense, and what the opportunities are. And I, and I walk people through it, you know, how the market is different from other game markets, why we're going uh, into mobile when we could go truly anywhere, uh, any game market, and where some of the, you know, good crossover opportunities are. And on the, the Blizzard piece, you know, and I never wish ill on anybody, um, but I think that particular example is a little bit of the wrapping, right? Um, there's this idea that if you make a mobile game, it has to be a mobile game, but your finger and your input on mobile, uh, it can be very similar to a mouse and, and or a controller. And so if you make an experience on mobile that could do well on PC uh, or console, I think you need to consider that and consider how you wrap that to your players. If that's something they want, and you have the resources for it, maybe you should do it. And I and I think that view, even in the West, is going to change as the technology gets better, right? Which brings us back to 5G. So thinking about, you guys have obviously thought about 5G, but could you give us a little bit of a, without revealing the secret sauce, what are you guys doing to kind of prepare for like the next level of technology that's going to make the experience on a mobile device uh, much, I guess, reduce the latency and just make it more pleasurable experience? 
Has that influenced basically your strategy uh, maybe in you know the five-year model? It has, Steve. It has. We are thinking about how we should build our games so that we can use what we've built moving forward. So a good example of that is we really push the limits on our performance for art. Um, we only go two years back and we actually go two years back from when we think our target release date is because usually that dates either, uh, where we've set it or later. Uh, so it's just the <laughs> never nature. heard about that in game development, <laughs> <laughs> just the nature of software. It's like I building think. a house. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so we're really pushing the limits of our art to make sure that, you know, I think a lot of times somebody will make a game and then they'll go to the next game project and say, hey, we need to make all new art. And I think that's really wasteful financially. Um, I, you know, Smite, I think, is quite a successful game at high res, but I still meet people who have never heard of Smite, even though that game has tens of millions of players. So I think that you know, you can use art for a very long time and people are okay with it and you can really build a strong IP. And also we chose to develop our mobile games in Unreal Engine 4, which is still, I think, a little unusual. Most people are using Unity or their own proprietary engine. And the reason we went with Unreal 4 is because we feel like it has the most future proofing towards really pushing the limits. You know, if technology jumps forward a lot with cloud based gaming or something like that and opens up the world to, you know, graphics, uh, unlimited graphics, so to speak, we want to make sure that we're in a good position to do that. Well, you had mentioned, uh, well, I, I guess with the expanse of the IP, right, and with the success of, say, a game and you mentioned that you guys focus on anime games. Uh, let's say in, in the in the West, uh, it does well, but it does even better in the East, right? Because that's just where it all started. Um, and with the advancement of, of 5G, making, I, I guess, you, the product uh, more enjoyable elsewhere, What? how does a game company address the protection of its IP in other places that it, it's not physically located. Uh, could you maybe give us a sense of, of your approach and thought to IP protection on a worldwide scale? Yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, you have to, I think, I think if I had to break it down to one message, it would be choosing your battles is key. Um, when I was at high res and that company was scaling uh, and I came on board, they were maybe just under 50 people. And uh, when I left in September of 2019, the company had grown to over 450 people wow. and the, uh, yeah, and offices all over the world uh, with players all over the world. One of the largest challenges is that um, you cannot always get an adequate remedy and uh, yeah. you have limited time, right? I have the same, hours in the day as everybody else, right? Even Bill Gates, who's some kind of superstar, right? We got the same number of hours in the day. And so you really need to focus your time on things that are going to matter for your business and don't pick battles that you can't win. So even the example you guys gave earlier, right, with Mobile Legends Bang Bang, you know, Riot takes them to court and, you know, gets almost $3 million uh, or Tencent does it. But, you know, Mobile Legends has made hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and Arena 
Arena of Valor, which you know is doing one and a half billion in China, isn't doing much here because Mobile Legends came out here first, and that had a real impact on uh, their business. And three million is, I don't think, an adequate remedy for that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think the the best solution for IP uh, enforcement. Um, definitely, you know, there's some things that are so egregious. You need uh, you need a lawyer to go after them for. But for other things, it's business planning and talking to lawyers up front and saying, "Hey, uh, this is a real risk for our business. What should we be doing? What should we be thinking about um, to protect ourselves so that we don't have to go to court? So that we can think about this on the front end." And and, uh, and I'll give you a good. We example. like that approach, by the way. Oh yeah. <laughs> You may not be surprised to learn. (laughs) I'll give you a good example. So for Mobile Legends, right, that whole fiasco gets avoided if Tencent releases Arena Valor in the U.S. and other Western markets at the same time as in China. Mm -hmm. And, And if your release strategy creates opportunities for other people to infringe on your IP, you better believe they're going to do it. And you just need to be willing to pay the price. Right. Well, on on the the notion of you know trying to work with different platforms and in different places, one of the things we want to hear from you is as a mobile company, you're working probably more with Apple and Google, uh, Apple and Google as the gatekeepers of their platforms. Whereas for traditional gaming, we're used to seeing Sony, Microsoft, Valve, and and some of the others. Does that impact? You know, what's it like working with with the mobile? platforms rather than uh, some of the other ones that we see for traditional gaming? And does that impact what you can publish or your timelines or the cost of development? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, Nick. So um, first, certification is way better with Apple and Google um, than it is with consoles. Uh, In the what certification. Way? Yeah, so they, they you, you submit your app and it's cleared in 24 hours most times. And oh, wow. I think, you know, with Nintendo, there's a lockstep process. It can take a week. And if you have a mistake, it's another week. And unfortunately, certification at console companies, it's quite unpredictable. Uh, you can get somebody and their view of the process can be arbitrarily different from the last person you got. You don't have like one contact uh, who does your certification. So you go into this black box and cross your fingers and, and hope it comes out correct. And if it doesn't, you know, it can create huge delays for your players. And so I was going to ask, does that result in a faster things move quicker in the mobile uh, distribution system? Maybe you get a, an, a notice that says this game needs to come down because it violated X and it's gone. Is, would that yeah. happen faster in mobile than it would in the traditional console platform? Um, kind of. So I don't think games get taken down as much in mobile uh, so much as it is you can get an update pushed through quickly. But the cost is different, right? Uh, when you get a game update on PC or console, you kind of just put up with it. It is what it is. You know, maybe you go get a snack and come back and it's over. On mobile, if there's an update, there's a good chance you could just get your app deleted, right? Um, especially if it's a big update that requires a Wi-Fi connection. Um, and hopefully 5G could help with that. So so you have to be very careful. It's an easier process, but it's a more dangerous process, I think, um, to do those kind of updates. Here's the downside, though. Uh Apple and Google, and I and I love the people I know at both of these companies, but Apple and Google, um, they don't give you the same promotional opportunities that you can get 
working with the console providers and the PC providers. Really? What it, you mean, like ads on the platform that are native, or or in what way? Uh, not so much paid ads. That's still I, I still think that opportunity actually is lighter, but more around organic promotion. So you know, if you're working with Valve, famously, you may have heard of the token system where you can spend tokens and get your game featured, and you know they do all kinds of cool things uh, around Steam sales and update promotions. And Nintendo, you know, they've got a newsletter, and Xbox has lots of inventory inside the uh, store where they can place your game, and you can work with different promotions like games with gold and and all those kinds of things they're much lighter or totally absent on mobile and so discoverability uh, and you'll hear a lot about this i think if you talk to anyone who works in mobile uh, it can become a big problem how do i get players to see that my game even exists speaking of of your gamers uh and and just the technology that you're using to connect with them it we've covered in a past episode the the data, the immense amount of data that games collect. And uh, from what we understand with mobile technology, you have access to new and unique data, which makes for some more exciting games at times. Thinking of uh, Pokemon Go as a classic example uh, with your connection to your local environment. What is, what, what is today's mobile game company doing? I guess we can really only fairly ask, what is your mobile game company doing to, I guess, prepare and also uh, anticipate the onslaught of data that you're going to be receiving from your gamers? Is there, is there a specific or have you a, a changed your approach at all from the traditional uh, game company's view of data to uh, a mobile game company's view of data that it receives on its players? So it's actually interesting. Um, you would think, and Pokemon Go, by the way, is such a great example. Oh, what a great game. Um, right? Nick, you, Nick loves it. It's, truly. <laughs> everybody gives it props for all reality, but I actually think the magic of that game is the geolocation-based gameplay, yeah. um, which brings people together. I think that's really what made that game special. And uh, the augmented reality is cool. It's a little, a little gimmicky. Um, but I think the geolocation-based piece was just phenomenal. Um, so for us, for data collection, here's here's the interesting thing. I actually know less about my players on mobile than I did when I was making PC games hmm. and consoles um, comparable. And here's the reason why. When you make a mobile game account, you can do it anonymously. And I may never know who you are other than your user ID, you know, 6544, whatever, um, because you don't need to make an account with us, right? So if you think about your new user flow with Blizzard, you make a Battle.net account and you put in an email address and you agree to whatever your privacy preferences are and communication preferences. And then you go in and play the game and everything you do is tied back to that email. And with that, you can find out a lot about a particular player. Um, for us, you come into our game, you make an account, and if you come in as a guest, which people frequently do, you have a unique ID that ties to our database. But other than what you do inside our game, we don't know anything about you. And uh, particularly if you're an Apple player, right, you're playing on iOS, it's even more closed off. Apple doesn't reveal really anything about their customers where, and that can create some problems, by the way, where uh, Google plays a little bit more sharing, but, but more sharing in a console sense, right, where they still 
own the customer and they don't want to give you too much information about them. So um, a lot of the data we gather ends up being anonymous. We can aggregate it. We can run interesting queries around um, what our players are doing or what are certain habits of players who are high value, but we can't actually find out who those players are. And if they leave our game, they could be gone forever. And that's a good point because, uh, you know, it's not personal information if you can't reasonably identify someone with a particular data set or, and this is often where I find, you know, it's the trick question where if you take a bunch of data sets that individually they wouldn't say anything, user one, two, three doesn't tell you who, who that is. But if you take user one, two, three, plus you can triangulate their area because in order for your particular uh, mobile game to work, you need to, you know, it needs to connect to their location and you could see a history of their location, which I guess is, is the one piece of, of personal data I had in mind that is, is it, if it's being collected at all, it's kind of scary. Um, but if it's not, or if it's been anonymized or aggregated and you cannot take the data collectively or individually and identify someone, then it isn't personal. Uh, and, and that triggers a whole set of, you know, laws that do not apply if it's not personal, right? I also right. wanted to ask a related question as it relates to COPA and the increased scrutiny that we're seeing on children's data. Uh, I guess as an offshoot of the same question, you're basically in the same position, whereas uh, you put the requisite consent uh gates in place, right? Because you have to have consent in order to collect uh, data belonging to children of a certain age. Um, do you find uh, that to be difficult to do uh, for mobile or easier? I think it's for, well, so it's interesting. For us, I think it's easier. Uh, you know, if you're working on Roblox, you probably have quite a challenge as it's a much younger audience uh, consuming that game, right? Right. For us, you know, um, there's, there's, many different options but i think that none of them create uh friction for our players we so you know famously i think high-res's method of operation was pretty simple it was to say hey if you're not of a certain age don't play our game you're not allowed to play our game um, and then they still take extra precautions right because you need to because people can lie uh, and i think for us you know players are so kind of numb to I don't know if this is a good thing, but they're so kind of numb to like seeing different agreements that they just want to get into the game. They're yeah. so excited for the game, right? So they're kind of like, oh, yeah, this is just a necessary evil for me to play the game. So I'm okay with these processes and, and anything you put in place. And I probably could put 30 screens in front of a user um, that were all purely serving a legal function. And I think, you know, they'd still get through it if they're excited enough about the game. And we'll see how if, if that stands the test of time because that that's being criticized, right? The the contracts that you just, you're not, you know, are they realistically being read? Because uh, we have these archaic uh, legal doctrines that say, well, if, if it was presented to you, you had notice of it, you're, you're deemed to have read it, right? Uh, we're not going to give you a pass for having skipped over uh, some, some, you know, a contract in, in effect. So I, I did want to shift gears, just one, ask one more question as it relates to the um, the use of microtransactions in mobile games. Are you concerned with the level of regulation that you're seeing, the increased scrutiny of microtransaction use in games? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if you're using um, or any loot box mechanics in your games or not, but just generally the microtransaction model in mobile games. Uh, have you had to maybe look at it more closely than you would have before uh, because of what we're seeing in the marketplace? We're definitely paying attention. You know, here's the thing. I think 
in the U.S., we're just catching up to the rest of the world, right? China already regulates loot boxes uh, and gameplay, by the way, because of gaming addiction right. uh, to some degrees. And uh, so do other countries uh, across the Eastern world. So I think we're really just catching up. And there are definitely some proposals that, in my opinion, maybe go too far. Um, I don't know that those will ever pass. I think there's a lot of people uh, bigger than I and my company in the industry who stand to lose a lot more and maybe can afford to uh, have a voice in these meetings where where I'm not going to have one. But, you know, I, I think if what ends up happening out of all of this is we catch up to the rest of the world, that's a positive thing. And, I, and I'm OK with that. And disclosing the rates uh, on loot box and letting people know up front what are your chances? And, um, you know, I think that's a healthy thing to do. Um, is that a complete solution? No. Do I want regulators to determine the complete solution? Absolutely not. I think if you give the game industry enough time, it will self-regulate and it will figure out the correct way to do it. And I think that's already happening. You have people um, very publicly speaking out about, uh, you know, not doing loot boxes or changing how they're done. You know, uh, I think Phil Spencer made a comment about it the other day. Um, Tim Sweeney is very vocal from Epic. And so I think that, you know, we will get to a place where, you know, players are very passionate about what they like and what they're willing to tolerate. And, you know, if it just takes a couple big companies to say, hey, this is the correct way to do things and it's more favorable to players and uh, everybody else will shift over. And I think that's a healthier way to do it than to put laws in place, which can be very hard to shift and uh, frequently are written by people who you know, uh, are excellent lawyers, but may or excellent legislators, but maybe don't understand our business and what goes into it and, and what's correct for us. From your lips to God's ears. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, be sure to check out our other episodes from season one and two of the Land Party Lawyers podcast. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our webpage, landpartylawyers.com. Brian, how can users find your games if they aren't out yet or if they are uh, where can they download them so probably the easiest way is to follow us on social media lionheart games um the shortcut varies because it can be hard to get good shortcuts these days yeah. uh, but you can find all of those leaks at lionheartgames.com we do have that primary domain um and i think you know just keep an eye on what we're doing and um a lot of our games are are being kept hush hush for the moment but i think it should be a good end of year for us uh, and there'll be lots of exciting announcements to come then we wait with bated breath i know i speak for nick uh when we say we love to hear your comments about today's show and opinions about the topics we cover so if you have any please reach out and until next time nick game on game on You've been listening to the Land Party Lawyers podcast series with Steve Blickensturfer and Nick Brown. To learn more about our e-gaming and esports practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.